0: Welcome to the Sifted Podcast, supported by our sponsors, Zendesk for Startups, and recorded at Dream Factory in Shoreditch. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's Deputy Editor. And every week with this podcast, we take a little peek into what's been happening in the Sifted newsroom, what larks and giggles we've been up to, what we've been writing about, why we've been deciding to write about those things. And we talk about some of the stories that we've been working on. For anyone who doesn't know about Sifted, we write about startups and tech all across Europe, about the people who work for them, the people who are starting these businesses, the people who invest in them, the people who buy the things that they're selling. Today, we're going to be digging into the monster valuation of Europe's
1: biggest speedy grocery delivery company, Getir, which if you haven't been living under a rock for the past two years, I'm sure you're very familiar with, asking if it's really worth all that money. And we're going to be speaking to our correspondent, Mimi Billing, in Stockholm about a Chinese shopping craze that's coming to Europe. And we'll be updating you on our latest coverage of the war in Ukraine.
0: But before we talk about all those things... We just want to tell you about something very, very fun that we did at Sifted this week, which was that we played a giant VC simulation. I'm not allowed to use the word game. Eleanor's just My main cutthroat at me. <laughs> don't say it. Don't say it. We played a giant VC simulation where we all learn how to become fund managers. And I'm pleased to let you know that my fund, Ginger Capital, Clocked up a 53x return thanks to a timely investment into a Swiss biotech business.
1: I'm still convinced that it was rigged because you were on that team, Amy. I'm really convinced it was right
0: We have strong connections with the media
1: at Ginger Capital, that, <laughs> that must be said. But it was really fun. Some of the things that happened in the game were you could you would roll a dice and then you could pull cards out that would trigger certain events in the game. And one of them was actually media coverage in Sifted, which gave you a little boost. And I thought was kind of hilarious. We, we didn't place that. No product placement no. deliberately. In the you game.
0: can't actually pay Sifted to get editorial coverage. <laughs> Anything else exciting that we did this week in the newsroom, Amy? We are in full hiring mode on the Sifted editorial team. Um, So if you are listening to this and you are a reporter, ideally based not in the UK, but elsewhere in Europe, and you would like to join this very exciting media publication reporting on startups, then please get in touch with me via jobs at sifted.eu. Come work with us. It'll be great. So let's get right into it. Today, we're going
1: to talk about a very big story. Getir, the speedy grocery company, raised a massive $768 million round at an $11.8 billion valuation last week. Makes it a decacorn. Amy, you've been following the speedy grocery craze since the very beginning. Could you tell us a little bit? We had a great article out today, on Friday, about whether Getir is really worth that $11.8 billion. So tell us a little bit more about the unique economics here, how something that seems to be so complicated can be worth that much money.
0: Yeah, so I think a lot of people out there have questions over whether these super speedy grocery delivery companies make any sense at all. Also, if the world really needs them, we will park that one for another day. But in terms of Getty's valuation, it is the leading European player in many markets it's in i think over 10 it's also expanded to the US which none of the other european players have managed gorillas did but it seems like it's kind of pulled back. And I think it now just has a kind of HQ in New York, but it doesn't actually do any deliveries. Getty has also been going for a lot longer than the others. It was founded, I think, in 2013 in Turkey, and it sort of established itself in that market before it started expanding. So Getty often argues that it kind of spent those years figuring out how to actually make the business model work and then expanding, unlike its competitors who had to raise just a load of money really fast and keep growing really, really fast in order to stay ahead of the competition.
1: But most of these companies, or all of them, are still losing money. So what do they need to do to start breaking even?
0: Yeah, they're all losing money. Um Getir is profitable in Turkey, its first market. And I've spoken to the founder before, and he says it's kind of like a matter of time with each market they expand to. Sure, there are some things that work better in some markets than in others. So, for example, I don't know, like... Ice cream promotions might do super well in Turkey, but not so well in France or something, you know, but he said about 80% of the kind of promotions and the strategies are transferable across markets. So it's just a case of kind of getting established there. Then in terms of how to actually make a profit. A lot of it is to do with scale. So at scale, you can get better deals with suppliers. You can bypass the wholesalers. So your margins become better. You can also get into doing own brand. So that's like if you're in the UK, that's like Sainsbury's Basics or Tesco's Everyday Value. They can start doing that kind of thing, further improve some margins. Then it's about operational efficiency. So they want each driver to be doing about three to four deliveries an hour. And if they obviously have more customers in a certain area, then they can kind of wrap up a few orders in one, which means more deliveries per hour. So there's quite a few ways that over time they can start making more and more money. So do we have any data about how much exactly
1: consumers need to be spending on these apps for them to break even?
0: Yeah, so in the piece that Katia, our reporter, did today, she's cited a report from the consulting company Bain that says that average orders need to hit about 30 euros. And they reckon that average orders are about 20 euros at the moment although when i've spoken to companies they've said it's more about the quantity that you um can do because the thing is if you have a much bigger order like a bigger basket size then it takes a while to pack that so you're kind of you're getting more money but then you're sacrificing it so they're kind of i think it's a bit of give and take in terms of how many people are actually using get Here, the app says it's been downloaded close to 40 million times so there's quite a lot of customers around the world
1: But still, you said 30 euros as, you know, the break-even basket size for these companies. That seems kind of to run counter to the idea of Speedy Grocery, you know, just the idea that you could just buy some toilet paper and have it delivered to your house or, I don't know, some small things that you were out Depends of? Depends
0: how fancy the toilet paper is. I remember when I wrote about one of the competitors, Deja, when they launched in London about a year ago. They've since been bought by GoPath, who's the big US player. They launched in, I think, West London and the most popular items included a very, very fancy brand of ice cream and mineral water. So, I mean, it doesn't take that many fancy ice cream tubs and mineral waters to get you up to 30 euros.
1: I'm still waiting for someone to do a speedy grocery for Ottolenghi ingredients. I feel like you could get to 30 euros very quickly on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so what does all this stuff around basket size and breakeven and all that stuff mean for Gatier's valuation?
0: Yeah, so could mean a few things. It could mean that Getty is actually completely outperforming its competitors. So there are some listed competitors like Deliveroo and DoorDash in the US, and they've seen their share prices dip quite a lot, which would make Getty's valuation higher than theirs if it were to list. But it might be that investors are kind of pricing that in, realising that it might list and then drop and they still want to get a good return on their investment. So it might be that. It might also just be that, you know, these investors, and it's got significant investors like Sequoia and Tiger Global, have already put so much money into this company that they just need to keep putting in money to ensure that it stays the leader. And then they might have a big return in the end. Super interesting
1: analysis. Thanks so much, Amy, for explaining all that stuff. For our next story, we're going to go to our senior reporter, Mimi Billing in Stockholm, to talk about a social shopping phenomenon in China that is coming to Europe. So, Mimi, can you tell us a little bit first before we get into the meat of the story about what social shopping looks like in China and who's the biggest leader in the space?
2: Absolutely. China is on the forefront of social shopping And it's the Pin Duo Duo app that is doing it. I mean, they started in 2015 and it's now one of the three biggest, if not the biggest e-commerce marketplaces in China, you know, almost ahead of like Alibaba and JD.com. And I mean, this is quite impressive, right? Because they just started in 2015. And I would say that the success for them is probably much based on WeChat, you know, they're kind of a super or turbocharged WhatsApp in China where you have not just, you know, like a messenger app, but you also have a fintech element that you can actually pay all your bills. You can have like, they have an app store inside WeChat where you can have like small stores for other companies. I mean, and that's where they have actually grown immensely. I mean, WeChat has one one billion users and I mean, almost all based in China. So that's been a great success for them.
1: And what does the social shopping look like? Like How is it different to how I might shop on Instagram or on Facebook?
2: Yeah, I mean, my understanding of it, I haven't actually done it myself as yet. (laughs) But it's that you, you find something you want to buy on the site, which is heavily discounted. And to be able to buy it, you will have to share it on social media I mean, in the case of Pinduoduo, that would be WeChat to your friends and acquaintances to see if they want to buy the exact same thing. And then you will get the discount. If you cannot get anyone to join you, you will not be able to buy the thing. So that's how social shopping works. Yeah. So you're actually bringing your
1: friends in to buy stuff with you. Super cool.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's cool, but it's also kind of interesting how, I mean, would you want to share all your purchases, would you share it on Instagram, for example, with all your friends and family what, that you're buying, for example, like a pair of shoes? <laughs> and I, I asked this to the founders, Lasse Dirks is one of them. And uh, he said that, no, well, we try to put up stuff that are very kind of that everyone could buy, not just maybe some fashion garments that you wouldn't want to share because you wouldn't want all your friends to have exactly the same shoes, right?
1: So you wrote a company, which I think you're referencing right now, you wrote about a company in Finland, that's just raised some money to bring this model to Europe. So tell me a little bit about the company. How is it different from Pinduoduo? Yeah, what are they doing?
2: Yeah, so this is a a kind of a small Finnish company, founded by a Finnish guy and a Danish German guy. And they are trying to do what Pinduoduo does in China, but in the West. And they try to do this with gamification they've grown the user base in one year with one thousand five hundred percent, which is obviously well, if you don't know how many users they had from the beginning, that's hard to tell if that's like many. but it's still enough, I suppose that lots of angel investors and to Pretty big VCs are actually wanting to put the money on this.
1: So Mimi, how does this company actually make money if they're offering such incredible discounts on stuff?
2: Well, they compare themselves to, let's say, Amazon, the big e-commerce marketplaces. They put a lot of uh, like a big fee on all the suppliers of goods, which means that the suppliers need to put up their prices. So in order to get the whole machine working, the prices need to go up for the consumers. So what Blitz wants to do is kind of cut out that, that extra fee, which will they will do by not having to do any marketing because it doesn't cost as much for them since everyone is sharing Blitz on their social media, as well as then cutting out the middleman and trying to then get the goods straight from the factories to the consumers so that's the kind of the idea of it then obviously blitz haven't really done the whole factory integration as yet so that is to come i guess that in the meantime they have some problems getting the best products on their site i mean even if they have two million products right now it might not be the kind of the brands you really want Do you see what i mean
1: super interesting but isn't this going to just encourage young people to go and buy tons of stuff that they don't really
2: need if they can buy it so cheaply and bring their friends in? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I would think the same thing, right? Because it's even the site is very much not actually categorized in like what you want to go and find, but it's just all these kind of deals everywhere. So I, I could see that as an issue, but Blitz doesn't see that, obviously. They see it more as, you know, there's a lot of poor people in the US and they can actually get together and get really, like, useful stuff much cheaper. That's how they say it.
1: Well, Mimi, the next time you're going to try and buy some new shoes, why don't you bring me in and we'll try and get them cheaper (laughs) together.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much. It's super interesting. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Zendesk for Startups. Zendesk helps startups build lasting customer experiences from day one. With the Zendesk for Startups program, startups get Zendesk customer support software for free for six months. You'll get access to expert advice and a community of founders and CX experts to help you build the foundation for long-term growth. Learn more and claim your six months free at zendesk.com forward slash sifted. And for the final bit of today's podcast, we're going to be talking about a few of the stories that we've published this week about Ukraine. So the first one that came out on Wednesday was from Tim, who you've heard on the podcast before. Tim Smith, our reporter based in Barcelona. And he spoke to a whole bunch of Russian founders, both based in Russia and elsewhere, about the impact that the war is having on them. Most of them, I think, or all of them, were not pro the war.
1: Yeah, a lot of them have actually built companies in Europe and have been in Europe for a really long time. So they are in a very difficult situation. They have teams in Russia that they have to continue to pay. There was one company that actually raised some money a little bit ago. And luckily, they were able to transfer some of that money to Russia, to a Russian bank account so that they can continue to pay their team in Russia. But had they not done that, it would have been really, really difficult for them. Yeah. To and others to were
0: using cryptocurrency to pay employees. Others had figured out some kind of hacks where they paid money via other countries like Kazakhstan. So they're Having to be pretty inventive to keep things going, it seems. I
1: think we also got some really incredible feedback from the article as well from other people that are going through the exact same thing. So there was a Russian woman living in the Netherlands sent her reaction in on LinkedIn. And she said that she's super frustrated that even though she's been in the Netherlands for three years building a social impact project she
0: is still harassed as if she is personally responsible for the games that male politicians play and what a lot of these founders were saying is that obviously they're now facing discrimination this is not a war that they chose to take place they didn't vote in Putin. They have friends and family who live in Ukraine and they're as devastated by the situation as everyone else.
1: But we'd love to hear more from founders that might be facing these kinds of situations. So please, you know, reach out to us, reach out to Tim, who's continued to do this reporting. And we would love to hear more experiences from people.
0: And then Miriam Partington, our reporter, who's based in Berlin, and Steph Bailey, one of our writers in London, have been speaking to different startups who are helping Ukrainians, who are mostly displaced Ukrainians, find work elsewhere. So there's one called Happy Monday. There's another one that just got set up by two people who didn't used to be recruiters, but decided, "Hey, this is what we really need to do right now." Called UA Talents, and it's kind of, they're kind of places where companies can specifically post-jobs saying we would like to, you know, a Ukrainian to fill this position. Uh, One thing I thought was quite interesting about this is a few of the platforms were saying it's, uh, there are lots of jobs for people with digital skills and they kind of almost need more other kinds of jobs like, you know, manual jobs or, you know, jobs that don't require you to be a developer or, you know, have marketing or product skills on these platforms.
1: But isn't that not the end of the story? Because obviously, even if there's a great job posting, you still need to get a visa potentially to work in
0: another country. How is
1: that looking?
0: Yeah, so other startups like Jabatical, which is a company based in Estonia, they've been helping people actually apply for visas and all those bureaucratic things that you need. Okay, maybe a company is willing to offer you a job, but depending on where you are in Europe, that might not be super simple. Uh, In Berlin as well, um, Berlin Partner, which is an organization that kind of helps international people find work in Berlin is work you know trying to work to help people get bank accounts and things like that that they might need in order to be kind of legally employed in a new country.
1: But obviously you know there are still millions of people that are in Ukraine and and working in Ukraine and so we had an interesting story from Tim about how tech workers are trying to keep Things running.
0: Yeah, so Tim managed to speak to someone who has been negotiating with Elon Musk. So the story kind of began with a now pretty legendary Twitter exchange between Ukraine's Minister of Digital Transformation, who has been doing some top tweeting, and Elon Musk. So he basically said, Hey, Elon, we need your Starlink terminals. Can you send us some? And he did. And the reason these Starlink terminals are good is they basically provide internet to places with kind of poor or bad internet coverage via these low-orbit satellites. So then this other man, Stepan Veselovsky, who's the CEO of the Lviv IT cluster, via a contact who was a contact of Elon Musk, also got in touch with Musk asking for some of these Starlink terminals. And lo and behold, they have arrived Tim interviewed this man and could see them in the background. He sort of swiveled his laptop around to show them. I just think this whole how Ukrainian politicians and people are using Twitter to kind of mobilize the global especially tech community is just it's just amazing.
1: I think another really interesting part of the story was the fact that a lot of these tech companies in Western Ukraine where uh, Stepan is based were hearing from their clients that their clients didn't want to work with them anymore because their internet could potentially be switched off, right? And when they were able to tell their clients that they had these Starlink terminals and that if something happened, they had backup and they could connect to internet, the clients actually stayed with them. So pretty cool story.
0: And that is all that we have time for today. So... As always, if you want to read more of our wonderful stories, please check out our coverage on sifted.eu. Sign up to our newsletters as well. We have newsletters focusing on sustainability, corporate innovation, fintech, and startup life, by which we mean all of the day to day pains and joys that come with running a startup. And obviously, you can also find us on Twitter at siftedeu. And if you have any
1: ideas about the format of the podcast or anything you want to chat to Sifted about, you can always email us on hello at sifted.eu. And please join us next week again for the next episode. Bye. Bye.